Being that this is 4th of July weekend, you know, we celebrate it tomorrow, I thought, um, well, this is a good time to talk about freedom for two reasons. First of all, it's on everybody's mind. Everybody's thinking about what they're going to be doing tomorrow, right? Well, for the next 45 minutes or so, let's, let's think about tomorrow. Let's wait until later to think about tomorrow. But the second reason that I thought we could talk about freedom today uh, is because every time I hear the word freedom, I think about how it is just so much a part of the gospel. In fact, it's a concept that's central to the gospel message. The gospel uh, literally means good news. It's, it's good news, right? But if you take the freedom and every aspect of freedom out of the gospel, you don't have good news. So without freedom, the gospel wouldn't be good news. It would just be news. Maybe it would be bad news. The good news is that because of the gospel, we're free. And it's easy to say that, right? But we have to be careful not to just leave it at that, because when somebody hears us say, because of the gospel, we're free, there are a lot of different ways that somebody can interpret those words. Uh, Some have taken that statement as a license for lawlessness. Uh, That is, that it means that we're no longer held to Uh, to any standard of ethics or morality, that nothing in the Bible applies to us anymore in terms of rules and regulations and things we should do and shouldn't do, that we're free from all of that, that we we no longer live under any type of ethics or morality, not even the Bibles. After all, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So yeah, those who are in Jesus don't face God's condemnation. But we have to balance a statement like that with what Jude told the early church. In Jude, uh, which is a one-chapter book, verse 4, he said, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. In other words, people in the church, there are some people in the church who will face condemnation. Who are they? He goes on to say, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus warned that there would be tares among the wheat. That's just a, a, a fact of life for the church as a whole. When you go into any church, there's a possibility that somebody in there isn't living the way that they should because maybe church is nothing more than just a tradition, something they do on Sunday. It's not a central part of their life. But hopefully we can find comfort in a passage like this, a verse like this, knowing that this phenomenon of people taking advantage of God's grace, uh, or what they believe is God's grace, that's not a new phenomenon. What Jude is saying here is that some people were going into the church back then, just like they do now, and they were using the fact that the, the gospel has freedom, this aspect of freedom in it. They were using that as a license for lawlessness. They were looking at it as a freedom to sin, to do whatever they want, a freedom to live however they please, knowing or believing that there's no condemnation that they'll face when they stand before God someday. The mistake here is thinking that the gospel means that there are no consequences for our sin, uh, that, that anything that we do, there, there's absolutely no consequence. But the fact is, Really, there's, there's nothing further from the truth. Regardless of the fact that a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is justified 
that is declared innocent by God because of their faith in him, because of their faith in Jesus, consequences do remain. God still has a wrath toward sin. The the consequences don't just magically disappear. The difference for the person who has trusted in Jesus for their salvation is that they are no longer the recipients or the objects of God's wrath. Instead, Jesus took that wrath for them. The, the, The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on our behalf because of our sins. So the consequences are still there. We're just not receiving it. Instead, Jesus is. Now, let's imagine for just a moment that somebody that you love dearly. Take, take just a second to think about somebody, uh, the, the person you love more than anyone else, other than Jesus, somebody you know, in, this, in this world that you love more than anyone else. And let's just imagine for a second that uh, they were kidnapped and they're being held hostage. And as they're being held hostage, uh, they, they get the, the information to call you out of your loved one. So they call you and they start making demands and they tell you, I am going to hurt your loved one if you don't comply with my demands. If you try to bluff me, I will hurt your loved one. And so what do you do? Let's say, let's say you try bluffing and you can hear your loved one screaming in the background. How does that make you feel? That because of your actions, the person you love more than anyone else is suffering, is enduring this punishment or this torture because of something that you've done. Now, I realize that this is a little bit of a a gruesome analogy, but think about this for for just a second. If God's wrath gets poured out on every sin and Jesus has taken God's wrath on our behalf, why, why, if we really love Jesus, why would we think that it's okay to sin at all? To love means to put somebody else before yourself. And so if we love Jesus, we can't adopt this mentality that we'll just go ahead and allow him to bear more and more of God's wrath. Of course, that's in retrospect on our behalf because we're free to sin. That's just not the way it should work. So the question of the ages is this. Are there consequences when we do sin? Yes and no. No, we don't face God's condemnation, but do we lose anything? No. Yeah, we do. We, we lose rewards in heaven. So there's not the, the aspect of condemnation, but there is a loss of rewards in heaven. So we're free from the consequences. We're individually free from the consequences of sin to an extent, since it can cost us those rewards in heaven. But the point that I want to emphasize today is the aspect of freedom in the gospel does not mean that we're free to sin. Instead, it means that we're free from the obligation to sin. We're not free to sin. We're free from the obligation to sin. When we talk about freedom, even freedom in Jesus, we have to understand, first and foremost, that the Bible very clearly, in black and white language, teaches that everybody is a slave. Everybody serves a master. Everyone. Listen to what Paul wrote the early church in Rome. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... 
you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Did you catch that? Everybody is a slave. Everybody is a master. In other words, Paul's saying that you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. Either sin is your master or righteousness is your master. You're owned by one or the other, sin or righteousness. The evidence of which you belong to is found in which one you obey. And that's a scary statement. The evidence is in which one you submit to. Now, we need to understand that our default position, that humanity's default position, is to be born as a slave to sin. Romans 3.23, all have fallen short. All have fallen short of what God expects of us. So we're all born as slaves to sin. Sin owns a person the second they are born. They are in bondage to it. You could even say they belong to it the second that they are conceived. There's evidence in the Psalms of that. It's a part of humanity's natural-born identity. And it positions the person at the center of their own universe. But let's back up a second here, because actually here in the sixth chapter of Romans, Paul has made it clear that we are indeed free, that those of us who have trusted in Jesus are indeed free, but free not to sin. You see, sin was once our master, and we were in bondage to it. We were bound to it. We couldn't help but obey it. We did what it told us to do. Everything we did was in obedience to it. But then Paul introduces the fact that we should no longer be sinning after we've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, trusting in him for our salvation. So listen to what Paul writes here in verses 6 and 7, Romans chapter 6. Our old self was crucified with him, with, with Jesus, in order that our body of sin, that is our old body, our old selves, prior to putting our faith in Jesus, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. See, he's referring to to sin as a previous master here that we've been set free from. So we're free. As followers of Jesus, we're, we're free. We're free from the debt that we once owed God because of our sin. We're declared righteous and innocent in his eyes. We're free from condemnation. We're no longer slaves to this cruel, harsh master called sin. Once you trust in Jesus, you become the property of a God who loves you enough that he would rather die the most gruesome and unjust death ever just so that he could spend forever with you in order that he could pay for our sins and redeem us so that we would belong to him. But freedom... Freedom's a funny thing. Humans with freedom, it, it's kind of a funny thing. And uh, maybe, maybe funny isn't the right word. Because when people abuse their freedom, there's really nothing humorous about it. So when I say that, that freedom is a, a funny thing, I mean it's odd or peculiar or um, maybe interesting in an odd sense. Uh, when African Americans, uh, who were once slaves in this country, they were brought from overseas to to become the property of slave owners, right? Of these masters who have these huge plantations. And eventually, of course, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation came out and they were set free 
from being uh, slaves from the moment that they were born, really. But here's what happened. This, and this is, this is crazy. The moment that they were set free, we, we might expect that they would just take advantage of it, right? But what happened? History tells us that these people who had lived as slaves for most of their lives, or all of their lives, they went back to it. They, they, they didn't have the courage, they didn't have the bravery to move forward in their lives as a free individual or as a free citizen. Instead, they went right back to serving the masters. Many of them went right back to serving the masters that they'd been with for so long. And, and in our culture today, we look at that and we think, man, you know, they, they were being abused. They had no liberty whatsoever. Why would they go back to that? Why would they want to return to a life of slavery? Similarly, uh, when people get out of prison, if you've ever watched, uh, you know, these documentaries where they, they follow people around after they get released from prison, uh, once they're uh, released from the, the confines of these cold iron bars after a significant amount of time, they have no idea what to do with their freedom. There was a show that they had on, um, on MSNBC a few years ago where they followed this guy around. They documented some prisoners who had been set free, and, and these people had been so accustomed to living without any freedom whatsoever that once they were outside of the prison walls, they just had no idea what to do. They were so used to watching their back you know, so that nobody was stealing from them. They were so used to stealing from somebody else when they had the opportunity to do it. They didn't know how to interpret just regular friendly eye contact. It was a threat to them, so they were, they were assaulting people. They carried out these, these habits from prison, from their, their lives in captivity. And so that's why so many prisoners, if, if you look at the statistics, a lot of them return to prison eventually because once they have freedom, they don't know what to do with it. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've been set free. We're freed from an old master who forced us to sin. We're free from the obligation to sin. And yet, a lot of Christians do the exact same things that we saw the African-American slaves and these prisoners doing when they experienced freedom. They revert to what they know. They're new creations with old habits that they don't leave behind, thereby living like a slave and living as if they're still in captivity and bondage to sin, despite the fact that they don't need to. And I think that's something that, to an extent, we're all guilty of. But I think that most Christians realize that that's not the way that we're supposed to be living. They realize that we're supposed to be living this life of freedom from our old selves and our old ways. Uh, that's not always the most um, difficult aspect for Christians to accept. Oftentimes, the most difficult part of experiencing Christian freedom or experiencing Christian liberty is finding this balance between licentiousness and legalism. Licentiousness, if, if we were to get a dictionary definition, it would be unrestrained by law, unrestrained uh, by law or general morality, lawless, immoral. That's what licentiousness is. And remember, that's the word that Jude used to describe these people who were coming into the church thinking, okay, I've got God's grace, now I can do whatever I want. Listen to what Abraham Lincoln had to say to these slaves. Once they, once they were freed, he addressed a group, a large group of slaves, and this is what he said. He said, you are free. 
free as air. You can cast off the name of slave and trample upon it. Liberty is your birthright. Let the world see that you merit your freedom. But then he kind of changes gears, and he says, don't let your joy, the joy of being free, don't let your joy carry you into excesses. Learn the laws and obey them. See, freedom, the freedom of the gospel is never an excuse for disobedience. It's never an excuse for rebellion. It's never an excuse for sinful behavior. Never. So listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So Paul's basically just restating in, in different, different terminology, he's restating the same principle that he was referring to in Romans, that our freedom in Jesus is the freedom not to sin. It's a freedom from sin. But Paul draws something, out, uh, something else out of this concept of freedom for us. The fact that we're free from selfishness. He says the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Guess what? You can't do that apart from Jesus. It might look like you're doing it. it, might, it you might really be convinced that you can love your neighbor. But this is telling us that you can't. You can't. I mean, if you listen to some of the people out there today, they'll say, you know, why, why are you doing something good? Oh, for good karma. That's selfish. Karma is selfish. Have you ever thought about that? You're really just trying to get something good back for yourself. That's not loving. That's completely self-motivated. Even though, even though the actions might appear loving, if loving is putting somebody else before yourself, yeah, karma is completely unloving. So the licentious person says, God's grace covers every sin, so uh, I'm free to do whatever I want. Or, or maybe they'll say, maybe they'll give the same argument that Paul was addressing in Romans chapter 6 at the beginning. You know, if, if, if our sin brings out God's grace, and grace is a good thing, maybe we should just sin all the more so that there's more grace. No, that's not the way it's supposed to work. The attitude of the licentious person is to accommodate the desires and to accommodate the lusts of the flesh. And it resists. It resists the teaching, the leading, the conviction, the prodding, the guiding of the Holy Spirit to the point of denying the Holy Spirit's power in our lives altogether. So Paul says, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But, contrast, this is what we should do. But, through love, serve one another. So our freedom in Christ frees us from being self-centered. Frees us from thinking about ourselves first and foremost. And it enables us to put the best interests of others before our own best interests. So that's what licentiousness is. The opposite end of the spectrum, the other boundary to avoid, is legalism. The legalistic person says, my way of being a Christian, 
my, all of my beliefs, including the non-essential ones, that's the only way to be a Christian. So what legalism ultimately does is it makes the standards and convictions of man the standards and convictions of God. That's what legalism is. The legalist views their Christian faith and their personal convictions as a set of rules that must be followed by or followed to the letter by absolutely everyone. In last year's Super Bowl, there was a, a commercial that um, I imagine offended a, a lot of people up here, uh, being that this is a green-friendly zone up here in the Northwest. Uh, anybody know which commercial I'm talking about? The Audi one with the green police? Um, the commercial starts off with this guy at the grocery store, and he's paying for his groceries, and uh, then comes the question, paper or plastic? He says, plastic. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, <laughs> this uniformed green police officer shows up, and he says, that's the magic word. <laughs> that's the magic word, green police. You picked the wrong day to mess with the ecosystem, plastic boy. <laughs> And, and so this guy, uh, the commercial's hilarious, it really is. So the guy gets hauled off in handcuffs, uh, and then we see the, the green police, you know, in a later scene, they're, they're sifting, they're going through the neighborhood, you, you know, everybody's got their garbage cans out on the street for pickup, and they're sifting through everybody's garbage looking for non-environmentally safe things, and they find a battery uh, in, in somebody's, um, somebody's garbage can, and he yells out, let's go, take the house, because he has a battery in his, in his, um, in his garbage can. And then the commercial ends with, with what's probably the funniest scene of all, uh, the green police pull up to this actual police car, and he says, uh, are you drinking from a styrofoam cup, officer? And, of course, the police officer's drinking from a styrofoam cup, and so, yeah, he gets hauled off for drinking from a styrofoam cup. Now, of course, this commercial is just making fun of, uh, of a very legalistic attitude, and, um, you know, sometimes legalism is somewhat funny, but more often I think it's probably tragic. Uh, this past month in the city of Almeida, California, public laws and policies were immediately changed after uh, first responders were forced to stand by and watch a man commit suicide without being able to help him in the San Francisco Bay. The man was attempting suicide and uh, had jumped off of a bridge. He's out in the water, and so somebody called 911. The police uh, were on their way, but the firefighters were the first ones that showed up. They were the first ones on the scene, and they had to stand on the shores and watch this guy as, at first, he's treading water, and then he starts flailing his arms as he's losing strength, and eventually he goes under. And the commanding officers are telling them, you do not go in the water to save this guy. That's crazy. The interim fire chief had this to say. He said that two things prevented the authorities from going into the water to get this guy and save his life. Number one, the policy is that if you don't know if a suicidal person is armed. You don't know whether or not he's armed. You don't go after him. Number two, he said, quote, there was a policy in place that pretty much precluded our people from entering the water, end quote. And the crazy thing is that several of these firefighters were good swimmers, had experience swimming, and they wanted to go in and save this guy, but they were told by their superiors that they were to do no such thing because firefighters aren't trained or required to be able to swim. And so the interim fire chief further said, it's muddy out there. We don't want our guys sinking. We don't want them in distress, end quote. And so they watched as this guy died because of the laws that were in place to prevent them from going in to save him. So the commercial and the story about the guy drowning actually have something in common. Legalism. 
legalism, rules that don't really need to be enforced. But the thing is that these legalists had good intentions. In the commercial, they want a healthy earth. They want a healthy ecosystem, and that's a good thing. That, you know, being a good steward of the earth, that's a good thing. Uh, in the drowning incident, they wanted to minimize the risk to first responders. That's a good thing. We don't want our firefighters dying. Of course we don't. But in both cases, those good intentions were negated or nullified by overzealous laws, overzealous rules, overzealous attitudes. It's the same way with legalists in the church. Some might be motivated by kind of a, a self-righteous attitude, uh, kind of like the Pharisees had, but more often they're just taking personal convictions that the Holy Spirit has put on their hearts and they're forcing those convictions on other people, not letting the Holy Spirit do that work in other people. While others, uh, when others reject or can't meet those convictions, usually what the legalist will do is condemn them. doesn't want to have anything to do with them. While the Bible does specifically forbid a lot of things, a lot of things, they are specifically named, and there are other things that the legalist will take. They'll extrapolate from the Bible. That's not in such black and white language. It's kind of a matter of personal conviction, and they'll enforce those things on others. Examples of that would be music. Uh, there is a Christian denomination out there that says, no, we, can't, we are not supposed to play instruments in church. And if you play instruments in church, you're sinning. Not piano, not drums, nothing. All you're supposed to do is voices. That's legalism. Uh, maybe a, a Bible translation. There are plenty of people out there who say, um, you know, if you have a translation other than King Jimmy, that you're in sin. That's, that's not a real copy of the Bible. Only the KJV is legitimate. And so it, this, is, this is crazy. There were missionaries about 100 years ago who would go overseas and teach people English so that they could read the KJV because they were so legalistic about KJV, King, the King James Version. Uh, another example might be uh, the method of baptism. Some people say sprinkles. Some people say full immersion. Sure, I, I believe it's supposed to be full immersion, but if somebody tells me that they were sprinkled, okay. Okay, it was still an act of obedience, which is really what baptism is all about. Um, Non-essential doctrines, such as strong Calvinism. Uh, somebody who's, well, you know, there, there are different views on, uh, on election, on God's election. Some people will say God forces people to be saved against their will, and some other people, the camp that I'm in, says, sure, God tries to save people, but he does so in accordance with their will so that the two wills come together, kind of like a wedding. You know, I say that I chose my wife, right, as my wife, but she also had to choose me. Well, God, being all-loving, I think that there is uh, there, there's a synergism there rather than a monergism is what it's called when, uh, when somebody believes that God forces certain people to be saved. But what they do is they take that, they take this, this strong Calvinism, and they say, we want nothing to do with anyone who doesn't believe this. Or people in, in my camp uh, do the same thing. They say, oh, you're a strong Calvinist? No, we're not friends, we're not brothers, I, I, I'm not with you, Right? So the legalist is the person who loves their convictions, they love their interpretations, they love their opinions and everything else that goes along with all of that more than they love the fact that somebody is their brother or sister in Christ. The legalist has been freed from the chains of sin, but then they've become a slave to a set of rules and regulations and obligations 
that are really just a matter of interpretation and conviction. So we're called to find this balance between licentiousness, living however we want, no matter what, and legalism, forcing our convictions on other people. We have to find a balance there. Both of these things, both of those extremes, overlook the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. See, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is leading, is leading a life that's directed by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's really what it's all about, is following the leading and the direction and the guiding and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And we're called away from things like guilt and superstition and bondage to sin, deception, depravity, ignorance, a destructive life. And we're called away from those things into this liberty in Christ. Not only receiving the forgiveness of our sins once and for all because of our faith in Jesus through his shed blood, but also living day by day, minute by minute, moment by moment, in this awareness of God's grace and his directing in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Now, don't, don't miss what Paul said here in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He said, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And here's the thing. Licentiousness and legalism are two different ways of carrying out the lusts and desires of the flesh because they both deny walking with the Spirit. Listen to what Jesus had to say about the issue of freedom. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. You would expect that Jesus would have something to say, a thing or two to say about freedom, right? So Jesus has been speaking, and as he's been speaking, some of the people who were around believed him. Some of them were starting to, to listen to him more carefully, saying, you know, I, I think this guy is on to something. And so Jesus, in verse 31, uh, continues. It says, uh, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Let's go ahead and stop there. I'm thankful to live in a country where I'm able to go to Walmart or family Christian bookstores and, and buy a Bible. I'm thankful to live in a country where I can go to church on Sunday without fearing for my life. I'm thankful to live in a country where the governing authorities will allow me to be a light in the darkness without risking my personal um, well-being or safety at the government's hands. And Americans pride themselves on being free. It's kind of our mantra. But if we listen carefully to what Jesus said in this passage, I think that what we're going to see is that he's, he's rightfully mocking that type of freedom. 
Jesus tells these, these new converts, those who had believed him, is what it says in, in verse 31. He tells these new converts that if they listen to what he says, if they continue listening to what he says and going with that, they'll be his disciples. And if they're truly his disciples, they'll know the truth. And if they know the truth, they'll really be set free. The truth will make them free. But the, the most interesting thing in this whole passage, maybe, is the response that these Jews who were believing him, the response that they had. They said, we're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. What? Are you kidding me? Is that supposed to be funny or something? Because, if, I mean, if you look at what they're saying, first of all, as they're saying this, the Jews are, they've been taken over by the Roman Empire. They are a part of the Roman Empire. Israel is not free. In fact, they're waiting for the Messiah to come in and make them free, set them free from the Roman Empire. So uh, they're not free in this situation, but maybe more puzzling is that if you look at the history of Israel over and over from like the very beginning, they go through this, this cycle of, uh, of walking with the Lord and then they, they fall away from the Lord. They, they, they start feeling independent of God, and so they walk away from him, and they get taken into, into slavery by the surrounding nations. Over and over, they, they go into captivity to Babylon, uh, to returning to the Lord, and you know, they repent of their sin and return to the Lord, and they get freed from their captivity. And then they, they go back to starting at the top of that cycle all over. And this happens over and over and over again. So for them to say, we've never been enslaved to anybody, is a really, really... Uh, yeah, they're just totally oblivious to the, to the facts. So over and over again, that's what they had done, generation after generation. And Jesus' response is to rebuke them. These, these new converts, he rebukes them. He tells them, anyone who has sinned is enslaved as a slave to sin. Nobody has any objections. Nobody says, that's not me. Nobody says that. So just like Paul told us in, in Romans chapter 6, right? Everybody is born as a slave to sin, and Jesus redeems us and sets us free. And so he concludes, Jesus concludes this rebuke by saying, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, if we were to rephrase this, Jesus is saying, you might think that you've never been anything but free. You might think that, but only I can really make you free. Even if you think you're free if you've sinned, and you're not in me. You're not really free. You just think you are. <coughs> Any freedom other than the freedom that we have in Jesus is, at the very best, a fleeting illusion. A fleeting illusion. And at the very worst, it can be a false sense of security for somebody. It can be a false sense of security. They, they don't have to submit themselves to, themselves to Jesus because they're already free. Now, the Greek word for indeed, when Jesus says you will be free indeed, uh, the, the, the definition would be opposed to what is pretended, fictitious, or false. So Jesus is basically stating in the clearest language he possibly can that there is no real or true freedom or liberty aside from him. If you don't have the freedom that Jesus brings... Your freedom is an illusion. It's fake. 
So in conclusion, as we celebrate the independence of our nation, independent of other nations, we have a lot of things to be thankful for and to remember. The people who are fighting for our freedom to keep our borders secure, we, we can be thankful for them. We can be thankful for our forefathers who founded a nation on very godly principles, recognizing the intrinsic value in every human life. We can even be thankful for our national leaders, even though we might never, ever, ever agree with them on political issues. <laughs> but most of all, as followers of Jesus, we should take this celebration as a time to remember that Jesus is the only true source of liberty. The Christian biblical view of liberty means that we're free to live in a way that reflects what we believe. We're free from the obligation to sin. We're free to be driven by God's grace instead of by guilt. We're not only free from the penalty of sin, we're also free from the power of sin. And it's a choice that we have to make over and over and over again. Sin is no longer our master. So we're free from the power of sin. And of course, we joyfully and eagerly anticipate the day that our Lord returns when we'll be free from the presence of sin as well. These things are worth celebrating. And you know, when I, when I um, think about freedom, when I celebrate freedom, I celebrate, I don't celebrate independence, but I celebrate the fact that I'm free to depend on, not independent, I'm free to depend on and to walk in God's grace because Jesus has made me free indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do... Thank you so much that we live in a country where we're free to pray together, where we are free to worship you, to publicly uh, wear shirts, wear crosses, wear things that tell the world that, that we belong to you, and, and to talk to people about the fact that we belong to you without worrying about them turning to the governing authorities who would arrest us. And Lord, we remember our brothers and sisters around the world right now who don't have that freedom. And God, we lift them up to you and we pray that you will sustain them, that you'll strengthen them, that you will uh, use the persecution that they are enduring to strengthen their faith in you, God. And we also pray that you would remind us that the only true freedom is the freedom that we have because you love us enough to set us free from this obligation to sin. God, I pray that this will be something that we apply to our lives day by day, minute by minute, and second by second, that we would learn to bask in the glory of your grace, that you would teach us to, let, to lead holy lives because you love us and you direct us through your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that if there are areas in our lives that need to be straightened out, that you would show us the freedom to do that. In Jesus' name, this message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. 
But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus.